0: This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. A young woman and mother brutally murdered in her own home was found by her 16 year old twin daughters, who frantically flagged down the police for help. The crime scene pointed to a killer with a lot of anger towards this woman, but the investigation would reveal a shocking motive and the most unlikely of suspects. This is the Nikki Whitehead story.
1: Hi, Amy. Hey, Megan. I miss you. We're not recording together today. No, and that's why our audio might sound a little different than usual. Yes. Megan, where are you right now?
0: So James and I had found a couple of places. We sold our apartment, but you know the market's crazy. And with the bidding war, that was just completely nuts. We just decided to take a couple months, live with a friend, and make sure we get the right house. But your situation's a little bit different.
1: Yep, living with Alan's mom until... You know, we also sold our place and we're in between places. So we're here temporarily, but our next place will have a podcast studio. So I am excited to have you over to record.
0: Can't wait for that. It's going to be great. Um, We have a couple things, too, that we want to discuss before the episode. And one of those things would be the ASC meetup. Do you want to talk about that?
1: Yeah. So Megan, I'm very sad that you will not be joining me this year at ASC, which is the American Society of Criminology Conference. It will be in Chicago and I will be presenting a few papers on uh, my research in wrongful convictions. And Megan, I'm also on a panel with uh, Jessica Henry. Oh, are you really? Yes. I'll be reviewing her book. Remember her book that we talked about, Smoke But No Fire? Yeah. Fabulous book. Yeah, it's so good. Anyway, at this conference, I will be meeting up with some of our academic listeners who also will be at this conference. How cool is that? Oh, that's so cool. I wish I was doing that part. I just don't wish I was flying to Chicago. You know how I feel about that. (laughs) Yes, but I'm very excited to meet some of our listeners and maybe I'll FaceTime you, Megan. Oh, I hope so. That's great. Have fun. And please tell them, you know, I said hello and thank you too. Yes. And some exciting things going on, Megan. We are expanding our team. We are currently looking for a part time social media manager and content creator, someone to help us up our social media game. We could use that. Yeah. <laughs> we could use it. We try, but that's not definitely yes. not, I would say, our expertise. It is not our expertise. James has been doing a great job, but he's quite busy with all of the other projects we're working on. So it is time to expand our team and bring on somebody who can help us. Yeah, we're, we're definitely in need. So if you or anyone you know is interested, you could always contact us. Where can they contact us, Amy? Email us at info at com. That's info at com. Or you could reach out on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, wherever you find us. All right, Amy, thank you. And we recognize that this show wouldn't be possible without our
0: listeners, and especially those that support the show. So we want to take a moment to recognize some brand new
1: supporters. Okay. First, we have Kelly Thompson. We have Sarah from Astoria, New York. I lived in Astoria, just to point that out, Sarah. And Astoria has fabulous food. Fabulous. Yes. We also have Taylor from Sunnyvale, California, which is right in the South Bay of the San Fran area. I'm very very jealous. And we have Kelly Megan, you have anyone else? Yes, Jenny Wood. We have Allison, Hadriana, and Mary Lee Ream. Thank you all so much for your support. These names we read are people who have supported the show in a certain amount, and this is our way of saying thanks. When you support the show through Patreon, you'll also get other perks like ad-free shows, exclusive live Q&A sessions, T-shirts, nail polish, and more. Check out the Patreon link in our show notes if you are interested. Okay, that's all the business we have for today. Thank you, everyone. And now on to the Nikki Whitehead story.
0: Let me begin today's episode by telling you a little bit about Nikki Whitehead. Jarmika Yvonne Whitehead, who went by the name Nikki, was born to a mother who was incarcerated, and she was actually born in prison. And so Nikki was actually raised by her grandmother, Della. So Nikki had a rough start to her life, one would argue. Nikki herself became a mother in 1993 when she was just 18 years old, giving birth to twin daughters named Tazmia and Jasmia, or Taz and Jazz for short. I know this case. I knew you were gonna know the case when I said it. Unfortunately, the girl's father was a married man who really wanted nothing to do with them, leaving Nikki as a young single mother. So Nikki moved in with her grandmother, Della, who would be the girl's great-grandmother. And Della raised the girls for the most part And it seemed that the girls were really closer with Della. They saw Della, the great grandmother, as more of their mother figure. And they saw Nikki as more of like an older sister type. Hmm. Nikki became a licensed cosmetologist, a successful one, by the way. And she made a very good living. She worked hard to provide for her girls and she had goals. She was very determined to achieve success for both herself and for her twins. One of her you know, biggest concerns was that their lives would be better than hers, um, so furthering them. And by all reports, the girls thrived too. Reportedly, they were very sweet. They were very polite. They both did well in school. They both had a number of activities. According to several people who knew her, Nikki worked hard, yes, but she also had a very active social life, going out a lot and drinking, and at one point, you know, maybe a little bit too much. But then at some point in her life, a little bit later, you know, after she was going through that phase, she began to slow things down. She was at an age, you know, she's 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. So I think that even though she had the girls, she was kind of living the life of, you know, someone that that age. Uh, By age 25, though, Nikki had developed a relationship with a much older man who was a trucker for a living. His name was Robert Head, and he invited Nikki and the girls to move in with him. So Nikki took her girls to live with her. And for the first time, she was more of the primary parent rather than an older sister type. And she got really strict with the girls. And they really came to resent this. They came to resent Nikki. They didn't appreciate having these rules. You see, Della had been much more, you know, um, laissez-faire about these kind of things. But at the same time, Nikki was working so hard and had these girls in dance, music, sports. She had, you know, beautiful clothes for them. I mean, she was really providing a life for them that she, you know, saw as a better one. Della also had a difficult time with the girls leaving because, you know, she had been their primary parent as well. And eventually Della sought custody of the girls. And in June 2008, the girls were sent back to live with Della her a juvenile court order because of a serious act of violence that stemmed from Nikki's attempt to parent her girls. OK, here, here's how this went or how this act evolved. The relationship with Nikki and the girls showed real trouble beginning when they were about 14. I mean, that's the age where the trouble starts. I got along with my mom and I was a pretty good kid, but we had two rough years and she said like the worst years, 13 and 14, were two terrible years where we didn't get along. There was a lot of yelling and I wasn't even that bad, but I can see how this was a normal age. Were you like that at 13 and 14?
1: Come on. Yes, I was. I was- You're a little difficult? I was a little difficult. Yes. I. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Great explanation. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. All right. So 14 is a difficult time. And, you know, you also have to take into consideration here that Nikki had on and off again, been a primary parent, but more off than on. And she was trying to lay down the law with the girls. And these girls were really mad. They're really mad. I think, you know, we have to evaluate how mad they actually were. But I can tell you, what happened was, you know, they were just so used to getting their way, and Nikki was forbidding them from dating older boys. And as a form of punishment for breaking her rules, she took the girls'
1: phones away. This doesn't sound unreasonable.
0: No, it do- that's that's why I'm saying as we go along, I think we need to evaluate, you know, what's, what's reasonable and what's not. I think that Nikki thought, yeah, this is an appropriate punishment for 14-year-old girls who are leaving the house without permission. But this act backfired on Nikki because... These girls both physically attacked Nikki, and she called the police. She was really scared, and she had marks all over her, and the twins, their version that they gave was that Nikki attacked them, and one of the girls had some scratches, but the police said that it was pretty obvious that they were minor, and it was probably Nikki trying to defend herself, whereas Nikki was really marked up really pretty badly. Even though, you know, they said Nikki had attacked them physically, they did not believe the twins. And so Jazz and Taz were arrested. And at this point, they were sent back to Della's in order to undergo family counseling. I think, you know, it was too hostile of an environment at that time. I don't think that anyone thought Nikki was culpable in the situation or guilty, but they needed a cooling off period and they needed to go through some counseling and see if permanency with Nikki was going to work out. They were, the girls were thrilled to go back to their grandmothers. Again, Della didn't have much control over them. They were kind of free to have their own lifestyle. And so this suited them very well. Nikki was so upset though, because A, she had just been physically attacked by her daughters. And B, she really didn't want them to make the same mistakes that she had made. She really wanted better for her girls. So after two years of counseling, anger management, and working together, A juvenile court judge awarded temporary custody back to Nikki. In that time, by the way, that two years, like in 2009, Nikki had enrolled in fashion school and she kept working to better herself. And eventually in 2010, when the girls were 16, and again, like I said, after a lot of counseling, that's when they were returned to their mother. This was Nikki's dream come true, but it wasn't necessarily what the girls wanted. And this happy reunion wouldn't last for long at all. Is she still married? Uh, Nikki wasn't married. She was in a a relationship, but I should bring up at some point that she had a couple of different relationships during the time. You know, uh, I wouldn't say like instability, but you'll hear more about um, the possible people that were in her life. At approximately 4 p.m. on January 12th, 2010, Tasmia flagged down a deputy officer driving in his cruiser down her residential block. She was waving frantically and begging him to help her. This wasn't a high crime area at all. I believe the officer was serving like civil proceeding papers. It wasn't standard for police cruisers to be, you know, up and down this area. The officer followed Tasmia into the home where her sister Jasmia was. And immediately he could tell that this was a crime scene. There was blood everywhere. There was signs of the struggle. Things tipped over. And it was really quick that he found 34-year-old Nikki Whitehead dead in her bathroom tub, appearing to have multiple stab wounds to her body. The girl said that they discovered their mom when they got home from school. So this wouldn't have been long after about 4 p.m. As I said, the scene had signs of a struggle. It was a complete disarray. Things were broken, turned over. There was a trail of blood that indicated that Nikki had tried to escape the house but couldn't. It looked as if though she had actually got to the front door and maybe fiddled with the locks or maybe she was weak or maybe she was grabbed, but she was apparently dragged from the front door into the bathtub, which was filled with water as well. It looked like there was an attempt to clean up with bloody towels found in the washing machine. But there was just too much blood to possibly clean up. So the killer must have realized this and given up. This, this is not, you know, people can't just clean up crime scenes with blood everywhere on rugs and whatnot. So nothing was taken from the home. And based on the evidence, it looked like someone did this who knew Nikki and had a lot of anger towards her the twin girls were taken into an ambulance to wait while the police were going through the house. And the police asked the girls about Nikki's relationship. And so they proceeded to tell um, them about Robert Head. He was 64, um, so significantly older than Nikki. He was Nikki's boyfriend, and there was some trouble in the relationship. Apparently Robert was, he was a trucker, remember I said? He was on the road a lot, and it appeared that at times where he was gone, Nikki was having other relationships. However, I should note that police were pretty quickly able to rule him out because he was on a run, you know, a run, a ride that could be substantiated. Jazz and Taz also pointed them to a man named Joe with whom Nikki had a fight the night before her murder. And that went on into the early hours. So this put Joe on the radar of the police and really this became their first suspect. We have to go talk to this guy. Why are they fighting, you know, early morning hours and then she's dead the next day? he's gonna become suspect number one. So with the suspect identified now, the police went to interview Joe and he seemed as police described, totally surprised and shocked to find out that Nikki had been murdered. He explained that Nikki was mad at him because he was ending their relationship to move in with another woman. So the police thought, okay, that would probably be a motive for her to hurt him, but not necessarily the other way around. They also asked, as they do and as is typical, could they observe his arms, his hands pull up his sleeves? They did, and they didn't see any wounds that would indicate a struggle. They found him to be credible so when the, we talk about wounds, there's with the stabbing, there's a couple different types of wounds, right? There's defensive wounds, which are common in a struggle. But then there's also those, like the, the knife slippage wounds, mm-hmm. whereby if you're stabbing someone violently, the knife blade might slip into your hand and provide little mm-hmm. lacerations on it. So they didn't see any of this. So having seen no wounds, having, you know, uh, basically not seen a motive, they just didn't think that he was the right suspect. Simultaneously, the police were taking the twin girls into the police station um, as well for an interview. And this interview was recorded. So as we always encourage people to look it up, I would take a look at this. It's interesting. Jasmia cried that she wanted her mama and then her grandma. While Tasmia seemed to be a little bit stronger, more stoic, like we'll get through this kind of thing, the girls told the police that they went to school that day. As they usual. were separated, right? Initially, they weren't. Initially they were taken in together. Also, they were considered uh, possible witnesses and they possible weren't victims. Suspects. They became suspects, but not initially. I think you know, it looks how like old were they again? They were sixteen years oh. old and it looked like they had found their mother and they were just taken in. They seemed shocked, scared. So I think the police let them stay together. They talked together for a little while, but this would change. They told the police they went to school as usual that day. And when I say as usual, I mean usual time. They went in on time, didn't leave early, just a regular school day. And they said that their mother was alive and well when they left. But when they came home, they discovered her dead body and a bloody scene. One of the things I thought was um, interesting that I noted, they said they didn't see their mother that morning. They said they they heard her, but she was in her room and she always locked her door. And I was thinking, God, did she lock her door because she's afraid of them? Or, you know, what was the reason that she always locked her door? The police, they thought some of the girls' behavior was odd. They were starting to become suspicious during this interview. But what was more concerning, and what you'll see in the video, is that while these girls were inside the interrogation room, they had long sleeve jackets on and they kept on gloves. Yeah, gloves on their hands. Did the police ask them to remove it? Yeah, because it was, you know, they look like they're like wrapped up and hiding something. So the police officers asked to see their hands and arms. Again, they're looking for the scratches. They're looking for defensive wounds. Let me guess.
1: They found what they were looking for.
0: Amy, you're so smart. What they discovered was that both girls had such wounds on their hands and arms, and they also had bite marks on them. And so when the police asked how they got these wounds, let, let, let me give you a guess. <laughs>
1: they,
0: what, what they said? Mm-hmm. They got into a fight with each yes! other. Yes. Like, like one of them in the thing said, she did this to me. And I thought it was pretty quick. Um, they said they got into a fight with each other and they were rolling around. And the, you know what I mean? This was their explanation. Police weren't buying it, you know, <laughs> but it was quick. The girls did tell the officers that they had a very difficult relationship with their mother. They actually said they hated her. Um, They said that she was always out partying, that she basically wasn't a good mom, but they definitely didn't kill her. The police were suspicious, but they didn't have enough to arrest them just yet. As you know, you can't make arrests usually that early in the investigation. So they let the girls go home with Della, but they just kept the investigation going. Any idea what Della thought? You're going to see later on with Della. Okay. Th- Let me just say, without giving it away, Della's a big supporter of the girls. Uh, she was very much, you know, on. Their- she raised them, right? It's like she, was she raised them. them. I think she had, you know, a different perception of the girls as being angels, mm-hmm. as or being, you know, maybe not angels, but she had a different perception than certainly Nikki did, and they certainly had different ideas of parenting. At this point, Nikki's body was taken in and autopsied. And what the autopsy revealed was that she had been attacked from behind with a vase that was smashed on the back of her head. And that was probably the blow that took her down. And then she was stabbed several times, one of the wounds severing her spinal cord and eventually killing her. What
1: was she stabbed with? Is it like a kitchen knife? Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember the exact knife. But but I'm saying it's a knife from the home. Yep. You're going to like, well, you probably won't like this part, but I'm going to bring this into it. Forensic odontology was used in this case, which I already said I know you won't love. But what they did was they took moldings from Nikki's mouth to see if they could match the bite marks that were present on both of her daughters. And an expert in this case said that to a reasonable degree, the bite mark on Tasmia matched her mother. Okay. I'm assuming there's a lot of corroborating evidence here. There's going to be, but I just feel like we should point this out because I would not be pleased if – I'm never pleased in a case where it was bite mark analysis that would be the only piece of evidence um, because it has so many issues. But if it is consistent with uh, you know, a growing other body of evidence, then I think – I'm okay with it being used as a supportive measure, just not as primary, the only thing. But in fact, further forensic analysis showed that the blood on the vase was from Nikki, but also that it was from one of the twins or both. Why couldn't they tell which twin, Amy? Because they're twins. And what does that mean?
1: That they have the same DNA? Yeah,
0: identical DNA. So this also becomes a problem and has become a problem in other cases with siblings who share DNA. Mm -hmm because if you think about it too if you can't tell which one it is there could be a finger pointing situation as mm-hmm. well it's a, it's a, it's a good way to create reasonable doubt i don't see that happening here though you're so smart amy it's like the second or third time i've said that during this episode but it's true mm. but i just want to point out the reality that it's not a bad it's kind of like you know when your kids what happens ethan says jordan did it and you're like i don't know yeah you know can't tell i don't know With the forensic analysis and the other evidence they had amassed, the police felt they had enough uh, to arrest the girls. And so in May, they were both Jazz and Taz were arrested for the murder of their mother. The girls were indignant about their arrest. They were defiant and insulted in ways, judging on their comments in the back of the cop car. But the prosecution was building a very strong case based on physical evidence. But just as we discussed, the DNA between twins is identical, which presented a real problem for the prosecution. But the prosecution was confident that they would be able to show that even though they th- they did see this as an obstacle, they'd be able to show the girls did it together. So they thought as long as we can put them together in certain scenarios, then we're not going to have to contend with this issue of whose DNA is it. You know, there have been some interesting cases where twins e- either got off or caused confusion in this way. I recall there was one case in Malaysia with twins. um there were some drug crimes involved, and I, I just recall that it was problematic identifying which twin has done this. And it's a good strategy, I guess, if you <laughs> if you're if you have identical DNA. But back to the state. The state showed that the girls put their clothes in the washing machine and left to go to school together. But guess what? They didn't go on time like they said. Mm-hmm. The state was able to show that that was a lie. They actually went to school about two hours later than they said. So they're
1: suggesting they actually murdered the mother
0: earlier. Correct. Also suggesting that, yeah, you know, this is a lie that you tell, like, maybe you don't think about their kids, they're 16. It's a lie you don't tell, like, where you don't think about surveillance, even though they were caught on surveillance. But how easy is this one? Like, uh, you go to the school, did the girls come in on time? No. So this lie was, you know, an easy one to disprove, but they were able to do it both through the school and through surveillance. So even if it may have been hard to parse out the two, they didn't have to because they kept putting themselves together. So they made it easy. They made it very easy. um, And the evidence made it easy. And so the grand jury indicted Jasmia and Tasmia. However, in the spring of 2012, the twins' attorneys approached the DA about a plea. Mm. The DA agreed to a deal that the girls would confess the truth and exchange they would get a break on their sentences. I'm not going to tell you yet. Do you have any guess to what kind of break they would receive, Amy? They'd be facing life, but with the possibility of parole. But hey, that could be, you know, a long time later. So the DA, I mean, DA was not going to go easy on them. Just so you know, I wouldn't expect you to think that. So maybe
1: the minimum of 25? So
0: close, just so you know. The DA offered them 30 years with parole eligibility. They'd still be so young. Yeah, let's talk about that. Okay, so the girls sat down separately and discussed the crime, but more so, they talked about Nikki being an alcoholic. They said that she used drugs, that she went out most- So
1: instead of being remorseful, they were like- blaming.
0: Yeah. And I'm not sure they got the truthful version of events because this is what they said. And look, we're not going to know exactly what happened. The girl said that Nikki woke them up the night before in a drunken state, starting a fight with them. They're claiming (sighs)
1: self-defense.
0: Yes, pretty much. And then continued this argument into the early morning and began a physical altercation with them. So they're saying she was drunk. She started the fight and she initiated the girls also said that Nikki grabbed a knife first and turned it on them and that they had a fight for their lives. And so basically they were defending themselves against their violent, alcoholic, drug-using mother. This story was a difficult one to believe, especially given what we knew about their acts of aggression. You know, there wasn't much dispute that Nikki did drink and she did socialize and maybe too much. Um, But there were really no allegations that Nikki was ever physical or violent. And the only real act of violence that we had prior to this was the ones of the assault by these girls on their mother. So I think this story is incredibly difficult to believe. But what would the DA ultimately decide? You know, these are difficult because the DA has the decision to accept or reject the plea based on whether he believes the girls are telling the truth or not. So... Essentially, in this case, the DA could have said, that's a bunch of bullshit. This story is bullshit, and I'm not giving you a deal based on this information. Well, the DA didn't decide to do that. I guess the DA thought that it was an appropriate sentence 30 years, and he wanted them to plead guilty on the record. So in January of 2014, Jazz and Taz both took a plea to voluntary manslaughter with a sentence of 30 years in prison So with parole eligibility, it feels like they're actually going to be close to 50, but still under 50. I think they'll be about 48 years old when they are eligible for parole. They are serving their sentences in separate facilities. To date, both girls have earned their GEDs while incarcerated and have been called model inmates. I believe that Della is still pretty close with them. I read something afterwards, like, It was an article or an interview with Della in which she said, I still can't believe my like my girls would do this, something to that effect. So I realized she was in their corner and supportive of them.
1: Was one of them the ringleader, would you say? Like it's from what I know of the case, it's hard to say that one stood out, but you would expect in this situation one to be the stronger of the two. I usually expect
0: that. I couldn't parse out who the ringleader was. I mean, I I really couldn't. I mean, if you looked at maybe the interview, you might be able to say that one of the girls, you know, maybe you could guess the one who was crying and, and, and breaking down. Maybe she was faking or maybe she was actually having, you know, a hard time and the stoic one, maybe she was, you know, a little bit stronger. So, but I really couldn't tell from this case who the ringleader was. It wasn't clear to me. So now that we are at the conclusion of the legal case, let's talk about a couple of uh, other topics. Let's talk first about matricide and then we'll discuss the theories and then our conclusions about the criminal justice system. Matricide or the murder of one's mother is very rare. It happens in less than 2% of all homicides. But when it does happen, I don't know if you knew this, but it's predominantly adult males
1: and not females. Do you know how I know this? How do you know? Do you remember Erin Caffey?
0: I do, yeah. So I
1: remember in that case, I remember being surprised because Erin was a young girl. She was probably the same age as these girls. And I remember talk, and this was one of our first episodes. So Erin was 16, right? I think so. She was young as well. And I remember she did not fit the profile either. And I mean, she was a family annihilator. I mean, she didn't just kill her mom. She killed her whole family. Wait, her dad survived though, right? He did actually. So she she was, tried to kill him. She was but an attempted family annihilator. Yeah. But yeah. Well, no. she killed her brothers and her mother. So yeah, yeah. she did. Okay. All right. But Yeah, so. I do find that interesting that it's usually adult males. But daughters
0: under the age of 18 are the rarest of these killers. So not just rare, the rarest. But when they do kill, they often do with multiple offenders. So what I mean is that it's more common for these juvenile girls uh, to kill with a partner like Jazz and Taz, as opposed to the or adult- Or
1: Erin and her friends. I remember yes. she like, recruited friends. Yes, okay, that's, that's interesting. true. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So I thought that was uh, slightly interesting. And when you break down the age group, I remember reading that adult males are more common, but when it's juveniles- I mean, males are still more common, but the percentage of females goes up by a lot. Uh, So there is something about the juvenile female. Yeah, Uh,
1: because of like probably hormones and craziness.
0: You know what? I'm gonna get right into now the factors um, that lead to this. So uh, criminologist Catherine Hyde writes on this extensively, and she says that there's no real predictors of matricide. Like you can't tell. Because, she says, of the rarity of these events, there aren't a certain set of factors, but she is also careful to say that there are certain factors that will increase the odds that a juvenile will kill a parent. What are some of these factors then? Um, they are, I th- I don't think they're going to surprise you. Uh, they include pattern violence in the home or some other type of family
1: dysfunction. You mean the child's being abused? Or it doesn't matter, just any violence in the it's, home?
0: Yeah, it's, it, it, she specified child abuse, but then she actually also said patterned violence in the home. So I, I think that it could be, could be violence. Uh, yeah. Yes, among the adults as well. Um, chemical dependence in the home and worsening conditions in the homes as an escalation of violence. So I think that you can see these red flags in this case. I mean, we did have violence in the home in terms of the girls were violent, but they talk about family dysfunction. I think that fits as well. I think they had a dysfunctional family in the terms of this, you know, pull uh, or tug of war between Della and between Nikki, and I think. There, you know, this was not, I I do believe that it it satisfies the dysfunctional. There was, I don't know to what degree there was dependence, but if Nikki was drinking a lot or using any types of drugs. It also
1: sounds like there wasn't a consistent father figure.
0: That's absolutely correct. So many of these factors that might, you know, be helpful in predicting were certainly present. Moving off of matricide a little bit though, or or in incorporating some other theories, I, I have to tell you, this one was for me a great theoretical case because I love to pick these apart and um, I can go first if you want. What do you think? Do you want to hear what I, because ha- I've got my criminological theory here.
1: Are you going to say control theory? <sighs> I am going to say go control you theory. You could explain it, but I, I that's the one I picked up on right Low away. Low self-control? Yep. Yeah, okay. God, I shouldn't have let you steal my
0: thunder, but I did. All right, criminologically, Jazz and Taz had low self-control, which Godfreytson and Hershey said is the result of being raised in a home where parents or other guardians don't recognize bad behavior or punish bad behavior. And Della didn't do that from a long time, and neither did Nikki. So I think that these girls were very used to getting what they wanted, and they had a lot of this. I would say, signs of what we call low self-control. Um, Because, as the theorist explained, you know, there's low self control that's usually caused by kind of this lack of regulations, but then there's the features. So, what does it mean, low self control? Well, they were very impulsive, they had very quick to anger tempers, they were physical. And so they show the symptoms of low self control to me. And I think that was because of probably the lack of regulation on them for so long. But I'm going to go one step further. They also did not seem to have strong coping mechanisms, so their behavior fits with general strain theory as well. I think once Nikki was blocking their freedom and restricting them, they became so frustrated and so angry that they couldn't cope. They just didn't, they didn't have the mechanisms, probably because no one really taught them how to, unfortunately, and I think that they just saw Nikki as the obstacle, and so their frustration and their anger, it built and it exploded. And I think that happened because they had low self-control and once one, you know, bad triggering event, I think this was always going to be a bad outcome, to be honest, because of the lack of control and lack of coping mechanisms. And it also sounds like they saw um, Nikki
1: as a real hypocrite. Do you think there's any neutralization in there? Denial of the victim? I do. Yeah. So, you know, the idea that they were able to justify their behavior because they saw Nikki as the problem. Well, two things I think you just point out good. And I actually didn't think of
0: neutralization theory, but it fits. Condemning their condemners means, you know, basically they are condemning the person who's condemning. So the, almost like you deserve this. You deserve this. And you're you're just as bad as I am, if mm-hmm. not worse. And, and they thought Nikki was a hypocrite. How yeah. the hell could she punish them for something that she's doing herself? Yeah. So that's one. And then, yeah, denial of victim. I, yeah. yeah. At the very end, based on what they said, I think you're right. Or even maybe denial of responsibility a little bit. Yeah, because even though they took responsibility, they didn't. They really, didn't take, really yeah. take responsibility.
1: But, so they show no remorse here. No, none.
0: Not not that I've seen, and not that I've seen to date. I wonder what will happen as the years go on. If they'll have you know a change of feelings um, about what they you know did as they grow up and as they get older. Mm-hmm. You know their kids. So like you always say, you like to see what's going to. What would their progress be like? Will yeah. they actually admit to any guilt? Okay, so for theories, I think we got that. Let's move on and end today's episode with, did the criminal justice system get it right? So let me just recap. The girls are eligible for parole right around their 50th birthday. I'm gonna go with, this seems appropriate to me. They are, at that point, will have spent a good portion of their lives in prison. And if they are productive and they can be redeemed, I might be okay with it.
1: Was there proof of premeditation? No. So I actually think that sentence might be a tad harsh. okay. Uh, Because you think this just happened in the heat of the moment. Which doesn't make it okay, but I would like to say that, so right now their sentence is 30 years they could be evaluated for parole?
0: 30 years. So at about age 48, they can receive parole.
1: I would like to evaluate them maybe somewhere between, you know, 22, 25 years. Are they showing remorse? What have they done? They were quite young. It doesn't excuse them. However, that does give enough time I think for rehabilitation I completely respect that point of view I like them to be at
0: the end of the four I want them to be closer to 50 before they they get out I just I'm always not more having comfortable. the pre
1: it's the premeditation part that I't Because let's just say that their mother was abusive and yeah. not that it's okay that they yeah. did that to her but that would be a mitigating factor it would be and look
0: I, I'm not saying that there's no premeditation I'm saying that I did no proof there's of no it. proof of it I couldn't see anything that would have mm-hmm. showed me that You know, I know they had hostile feelings to her. I know they were angry, but I also think they had hot tempers.
1: I think it's very important, though, if we're going to show them any leniency, they need to show remorse, apologize, tell the truth. I want all of that. Yeah, I agree.
0: I'd like to I'd like for them to admit the truth here because I don't think they told the
1: truth. Mm-hmm.
0: Also, I don't know that I love the law when it allowed juveniles to be sentenced. We talked about this briefly um for a life sentence without oh, the possibility of I, I 100% of
1: agree with that change.
0: Okay, so um the possibility at some point there was a possibility at some point that juveniles could be sent to prison and never have any option for parole. Now adults get that, we know that, but adults are different than mm-hmm. juveniles. Um, and we were just talking a little bit about the the cases, but le- let me fill our listeners in. Just in case people don't know, there's some interesting case law with with the Supreme Court as it relates to sentencing of juveniles. Just so you understand how far we've come, the Supreme Court first struck down the use of the death penalty for juvenile juveniles in 2005. Do you remember which case that was? Roper v. Simmons. That is correct. So this was the first case in which the court said it is now a violation of, Eighth Amendment rights to cruel and unusual punishment to execute juveniles. I'm surprised it took us that long. I'm not surprised. 2005, that's pretty recent. I know, but I don't think we're we're as progressive as we could be in that area. Although they did rely, the court did rely on science and on the the development of the juvenile brain and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So that was a great, you know, unfortunately, it was a great step, but it was the worst case ever. This is the one juvenile, which I probably would have, of course, you understand he was a complete psychopath he killed someone just to see someone die just for fun you know so this wasn't the case but i did agree with the decision in general but then in graham v florida in 2010 the court said that any juvenile not convicted of a homicide had to be given parole eligibility at some point hmm. and then in a joint decision in miller v alabama and jackson v hobbs in 2012 the supreme court ruled that life sentences without the possibility of parole for juveniles for any crime violates the Eighth Amendment as cruel and unusual. So now juveniles are entitled to uh, parole consideration. In those cases, uh, Miller was a 14-year-old boy, and with an accomplice, he they beat someone to death with a bat, and then they burned his body in a trailer. So, I mean, these are heinous crimes, but we have 14-year-olds. While Jackson age 14, committed a robbery with two other kids and one of them shot the store clerk and then they robbed the place and he was convicted of capital murder. But that's like, um, what is that? Felony Felony murder, murder, yeah. yeah. Which is particularly harsh for a 14-year-old, I'd have to say. So the decisions allow now, I think the progress we've made where we're at is just that any juvenile can be considered, at least for parole, which I think is you know, that's a s- more sign of uh, a sign of more progressive society in terms of our legal system. I agree.
1: Do we know if the girls keep in touch? Or are they allowed to? I don't know. I, I don't know if they do. I I have I'm to imagine that they wouldn't be allowed to, I would imagine. Right. Because they're co-defendants or no. Yeah.
0: But their cases are settled. They're they're, they're already convicted. So I don't see that. I don't so, know. That, you're and, not allowed to contact like your victims or certain yeah. people. But because and, they were they pled and they're convicted. I don't know why they wouldn't be allowed to keep in touch. Because like the Menendez brothers, yeah. for example, that they they in kept touch. in touch, And yeah. um, there was, you know, because their cases were settled, they were already convicted, so there hmm. might be, you know, yeah. and we do state know Amy institutionally too. Not even state differences, you know, like when you go to Jersey State Prison, the rules are totally different than when you go to like um, you know, Northern State or mm-hmm. you know. So even within Edna Mann has completely different rules.
1: So true.
0: Um, individually, this could be different, but I would wonder if they stayed in touch too, and I wonder if time will you know I wonder if they'll rehabilitate I'm a little worried about them I I worry if they'll grow out of it or if they're just are they inherently violent Um, I think
1: probably one of them is the instigator and whoever that one is is the one who might not age out
0: reform Mm -hmm. okay
1: but maybe without each other like maybe it's like together they're evil but separately they're okay
0: who knows? Oh, no, I know. I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Like, you know, maybe it's like the perfect, like when you talk about those cases where if two people never met, with these crimes have psycho- ever...
1: Like they shared psychosis ones, remember? Falea uh, Yes, Falea no. fal- fal- So triple.
0: possibly, you're right. Possibly apart, they are better. Uh, I do know we'll have about 30 years to see... Um, what happens? We'll bring you an update then. Okay. If there's no final thoughts for today, uh, we'd like to thank our listeners for suggesting this case. And before we sign off, we'd like to take this opportunity to
1: answer questions from our supporters. All right, Megan, our first question is from Kelly. And I think you're going to want to take this one. All right. Let's see why. Go ahead. Other than strain theory, what are the most common theories or issues that contribute to repeat offenders and serial killers? either starting or contributing to their criminal careers. Oh, I see, because it was serial uh, offenders there. Well, obviously, when we're talking about repeat and serial, they
0: could be different types of offenders. You know, repeat offenders could be kind of your, what we call your career offenders. And so uh, they're not exactly the same group, but I can tell you for people who are serial, um, one of the strongest contributing factors is uh, relates to biological theory. They've almost all had some type of traumatic injury, whether it be brain uh, well, actually, usually it's brain. So they've all had some type of traumatic injury um, combined with a uh, traumatic childhood experience. So I would say the common thread is the biological factors, but then the trauma of the childhood experience that usually results in antisocial traits. So among all of these, you're going to find, you know, it could be sociopathology or psychology. But even if it doesn't rate that high at the end of the scale, I would say most of these people have cumulative antisocial traits throughout their lifetimes.
1: All right. Thanks, Megan. The next question is from Jen. And I have to point out what Jen does. Jen runs a mini horse rescue. Stop it. Yes. Jen, can we please come see your horse? I want to come visit. I don't don't (laughs) know. But when I read that, I was so excited. Anyway, so Jen wants to know, this is one of my favorite questions. And she did say, you might have said this before, but maybe she didn't recall. How did you meet, and what made you start a podcast? You want to start? Do you want me I to? Know, I think we, you know, I think we just answered it recently, so I don't want to bore the listeners who heard it. So, very briefly, I will say that we both went to the same graduate school. We were both pursuing our PhD in criminal justice at John Jay in New York. Mm-hmm. We were in different cohorts, right? But we we were acquaintances. Yeah, we were friendly, but we weren't like best friends like now. So then, what happened, Megan? Well, what
0: happened then is that I was two years ahead of Amy, so I founded a criminology program and wound up hiring Amy for the program, and we became closer then, and when we started the
1: podcast, I would say that's when we really upped our friend game and became very best friends. I think one of the main reasons we started a podcast, other than the fact that James suggested it and I was a true crime fan, is we were doing this anyway. We would sit in our office and go back and forth about cases, about theories, about did the system get it right? So essentially, we're just kind of pressing record in our office, having our normal conversations. Perfect explanation, Amy. Thank you for the questions. It's great. Yes. Thank you all so much. Um, So everyone, thank you so
0: much. And we'll catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show while gaining access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. For more information, visit patreon.com slash crime. Sources for today's episode include CBS News, multiple articles by Katherine Hyde, a criminologist from University of South Florida, an episode of Snapped, and the Covington News.
1: Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s.